All right, so we're continuing um, on chapter two of our textbook, The Journey into God's Word, and we are giving the summary of the interpretive journey, what the things that we're going to cover uh, in the next few lessons, but uh, it's just to give us a general overview of the, the correct interpretive method. How can we understand scripture in a way that is faithful to what God intended it to mean? And I'm going to start today with um, some maybe not so correct ways that people interpret scripture, but that are very popular. So I'm just going to give you a few examples of this kind of interpretation. All right. And then we'll move on on the different steps. Let's just start with a word of prayer, though. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your grace that is so um, amazing to us, that has given us salvation in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given us, that instructs us and brings to mind the things that we have learned. Lord, we thank you that you have inspired your word, that you made it your words in human language so that we can understand. We're thankful for good Bible translations, and Lord, we're thankful for commentaries, uh, faithful people that have worked hard um, to explain the meaning of Scripture. Lord, thank you, and I pray that you would bless our time together here to be an encouragement and um, really a stirring of uh, the ways that we read the Bible. And I thank you and I ask your blessing over our time here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, um, one popularized method of interpretation has been um, allegorization. So, but it's basically interpreting scripture to have some hidden meaning, meaning behind what the text is actually saying. So there is <clears throat> what is written, and there is what the author intended, um, intended meaning behind that. So an example of that is um, Augustine. Um, he, and here is his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, 25-37. Um, so, let, how about we open the scriptures there? Luke 10, so you might, most of you might be familiarized with this text, but let's take a look at what actually says. So, chapter 10, and we're looking at verse 25 um, through 37. Well, actually, the Good Samaritan, the parable is, is told us on verse 30, right? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and bit him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on the journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. 
and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. All right, so here is Augustine's take on this text, okay? The traveler, uh, the, the person who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, actually is Adam. He's talking about Adam. Um, Jerusalem here, it is not the actual Jerusalem in Israel. It is the heavenly city from which Adam fell. Um, Then Jericho is Adam's resulting morality. That's where he was led to. Um, The robbers are the devil and his demons. Um, The Description that they stripped him of his clothes. That means depriving Adam of his immortality. Um, Then the beating of him was encouraging Adam to sin. (laughs) And then leaving him half dead, it was that it meant that Adam was dead spiritually but retained some knowledge of God. So, So he was just half dead. He wasn't completely dead. The priest and the Levite is the ineffective ministry of the Old Covenant. The Good Samaritan, then, is Jesus Christ. And then the binding of the wounds is the restraining from sin, and the oil is the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the wine is the exhortation to do good works. And the donkey that he took him in is the body of Christ that Um, carried out this guy. And then the inn actually is the church. The two coins um, that is given in the, I think it is on the next, the the coins that he he gives to pay the inn is the two commandments of love. (laughs) And then the innkeeper actually is the Apostle Paul. I mean, how, how do you come up with that? Paul, (laughs) in Jesus' parable, probably, I mean, the Lord knows everybody, so he probably knew Paul because, you know, from creation and um, ages past, he he chose him, and, but they even, they, they didn't meet until later in the road, on the road to Damascus. So, this is an example of, um, what we call the allegorical way of interpreting scripture. Throughout the Middle Ages, this fourfold sense was altered to refer to different things, but held largely intact. John Kastner, for example, constructed this poem to teach hermeneutics. So here's what he says. The letter shows us what God and our fathers did The allegory shows us where our faith is hid. The moral meaning gives us rules 
of our daily life, and the analogy shows us where we end our strife. So what, what is he saying here? That the actual meaning of Scripture is behind these allegories of what they don't, um, the, a, a, a different meaning. So the allegorical sense is the devotional sense. It is focused on Christ and on the church. It is tropological, it is the moral sense, it really has to do with the way you interpret it. So we wouldn't agree with this type of interpretation. Um, I think MacArthur tells this story, an example of uh, allegorizing that he heard in a conference. And he writes, I heard an example of an allegory at a conference where one of the speakers talked about John chapter 11. So this is the story, the resurrection of Lazarus. And then this was his interpretation, this guy that MacArthur is hearing. Lazarus is a symbol of the church. And what we have here is a vivid picture of the rapture of the believers. The resurrection of Lazarus is the church um, going through the rapture. So afterwards, the speaker came up and said, John, did you, did you see that before in, in, the, in this text before? You know, this interpretation. And then he said, I, I try to be honest but diplomatic, and this is how he answered. You know, I doubt that anyone has ever seen that text in the slide before. <laughs> You're the first. <laughs> so... Um, it, it is, we, we joke about it and we, we think about, but it is sad that there's actually people out there that would read their Bibles in this way. And not because they want to, or, you know, there's always our simple heart that wants to do whatever pleases us and whatever feels more comfortable. But um, God has called us to be faithful. Right? And a lot of it, it is ignorance. You know, that's how they've been told and how they've been taught uh, to interpret scriptures. Now, there is something here that I want to make a distinction. There is um, a allegorical method where you make it into an allegory is different than typology. We're okay with typology, but not with allegory. And let me explain. Typology is the method that connects a person, event, or thing, or idea from the Old Testament, which is called a type, and with something analogous in the New, called an anti-type. So topo topological exegesis was a technique for bringing out the correspondence between the two testaments, and took it as to guiding prints as its guiding principle, the idea that events and pers personages of the old were types of, or in other words, prefigured or anticipated the events and, and characters of the New Testament. So the typologist took history seriously, and it was the scene of the progressive unfolding of God's consistent redemptive purpose. Typology, unlike allegory, had no temptation to undervalue, much less dispense with the literal sense of scripture. So I can give you some examples of typology. Jesus 
um, when he talked about Jonah. Remember that he refers to Jonah? The Jonah spent three days uh, in, the, um, in the stomach of the fish. And then he uses that as analogy to his um, burial and resurrection, that he would spend three days. Um, and so, but it's Jesus that is doing that. Um, he knows exactly what he meant by what he intended. He's God. Uh, Moses lifting up the bronze serpent is also referenced by Jesus. And he says, you know, that is a type for Jesus' exaltation. Um, in Romans chapter 5, Adam is a type of Christ. He's referred to, Christ is referred to as the second Adam. So this is typology. Are, are you following? So the difference allegory is it's not evident. You're just trying to come up with a, a total different meaning. Typology is when you see patterns in the scripture. Um, and you, th you think about um, David. We've been studying for Samuel. And, and there is a lot of different um, illustrations that you look back and I'm like, oh boy, this is happening here with, with Jesus. It's something very similar. So that is a type and anti-type. I would be careful, though, to, to make those analogies unless the scripture explicitly say, and, and to be careful not to go too far on thinking about these types and anti-types. Um, all right, here's a different uh, method of interpretation. Uh, that is not correct. It's quite prevalent in our generation. It is the method of contextualization. Contextualization is a method of interpretation that has been advanced primarily by missionaries, Bible translators, and sociologists, those who serve extensively in cross-cultural contexts. Its rise to popularity is tied closely to the rise of the social sciences, such as anthropology, sociology, linguistics, in theology, and missiology. So, I, and I think, I probably shouldn't use this example, but uh, you'll remember that a few months ago, we had uh, a missionary come and preach to us. And he preached on, um, it was the, the parable of um, the prodigal son, yes. <laughs> um, and he spent the first 20 minutes of his sermon talking about psychology view of shame. And he said, you know, I want you to look at this text with different eyes. <laughs> you know, I want to contextualize this to you. And, uh, you know, this text is really about shame. You probably will remember that. And I know some of you were, when you were hearing that, were like, I don't know what this guy is saying is actually scripture is saying. It, it, it is an attempt to look back at the story and think, okay, this is, this is what it means for today, really. It, um, otherwise, people won't understand it. Proponents insist that interpretation is culturally defined and driven. And as such, there is no single objective method of interpretation that transcends culture and applies indiscriminately to all. 
When there may be some basic universal principles, each culture must make its own unique contribution to the process of interpretation. This is how they uh, articulate. No two cultures will have the same interpretation of a particular passage of scripture. No two cultures can understand the meaning of a passage the same way. Culture becomes hermeneutic and meaning is relative. Um, so here's something that, um, you know, seen particularly with missionaries when they're translating the Bible, right? When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You know, I've seen some missionaries translating that to whatever type of, of food that people were sustained by. You know, I, I'm just going to throw here, you know, in, the, in Mexico, uh, if you're trying to translate faithfully to the people, would understand. So Jesus actually should say, I am the tortilla of life. You know, that, that is a, a, an example of how, you know, they're trying to use the context of that culture and, and trying to interpret in that way. So that, okay, we're conveying the meaning. Well, and this is the importance of us thinking, grammatical interpretation. We look at what the words mean as their normal meaning, unless it is clear to us that it's a figure of speech. One of the examples that I have here, um, it says that the, the trees are clapping their hands in worship to God. I mean, trees don't have hands. Clearly, that is a, 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 a metaphor. So... Uh, but contextualization, it is not, it's not a, a, a very good method because it put the emphasis on, on the person, on the receiver. It's all about trying to accommodate the person's needs. So, you know, th deep theological uh, things in Scripture and, and language that is used being replaced, it totally strips it off from what it actually meant. Um, so, for instance, when, this, when John, the, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, some cultures don't have lamb, um, but they might use different animals as a sacrifice. It, it, do we have a prerogative of changing the text to say, um, well, maybe it is not the lamb, but the capybara in Brazil for the Indians, you know? No, um, it actually meant something in the Old Testament. Um, it, it is culturally bound. The references, the instructions that was given to Israel was to sacrifice lambs. And therefore, when Jesus comes, he says, you know, I am the one that takes away sin of people. Not animals, but I am the one. All right, is that, is that clear? Does that make sense? Any questions on this different method of interpretation and observation so far? Just want to give some time here. Yeah, Jenny. Wouldn't you say that, especially when a culture is based on the religion it should, so Jenny is, is saying here, uh, they're using the example of uh, trying to translate to a Muslim culture. Uh, they already have 
preconceived ideas of who they think God is. Um, and so, you know, when you, you, you start saying this is, this is God, you know, this is Allah, you know, like how some Bible translators uh, compromised and tried to, um, hey, they, they, they will understand what Allah means because they worship Allah as their God. No, no, no. Allah, described in the a, in a Quran, is really a, a God that is merciless, that doesn't give um, grace uh, to anyone. People have to earn it to, to, to have a relationship with him. So it, it's the danger when you're trying to accommodate those things to compromise what God actually meant. So it's a very good observation there. All right. Anybody else? Okay. So now I wanted to move on to our, um, and I felt like last week I, I ran through this too quickly, <laughs> um, our, actually, our actual method of interpretation, which we've been calling the interpretive journey. That's a little um, chart in our, oh, it's not, this on. Oh, uh, how do I? Do you? Can you skip? I don't think the batteries. I don't know. <laughs> it has batteries. All right, you can pass that for me. Thank you. So, well, let's let's look at these steps again. And I'll try to give more time here for us to discuss some of examples. The interpretive journey provides a consistent approach that allows modern readers to grasp the meaning of the text so that they apply the text in the world of today. The journey works from the premise that the Bible is God's communication of himself and, and his will to us. So the journey is composed of five steps, and I mean, you can come up with different steps as long as you're faithful <laughs> to the text, um, you know. And we're going to break down a lot of this, uh, these steps. Like, we're going to spend a lot of time just on step one. Um, next week, um, Eric is going to start talking about how do you read the different paragraphs of Scripture? How do you interpret these sections? And then... We're going to expand that to a larger context. Well, how do you see it on the uh, on its actual cultural context? What it what it meant then, and so forth. Far too often, people try to interpret a verse by itself in isolation without looking at the context itself. Why is so important that we read the paragraphs in its context? Because you can use verses at random. And I grew up with this Revelation chapter three. Verse 20, a passage that is very familiar to many of you. Revelation 3.20, it's a verse that people use for evangelism, right? I don't know if you heard this before. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he 
with me. So people saying, hey, Jesus is just knocking at the door of your heart. You just have to accept him. How many of you heard this before? Yeah, I think most of us did. Um, it's used as an illustration of Christ's invitation for salvation. Um, and um, if this is all that we looked at, it would be easy to understand the verse in terms of someone asking Jesus into his or her life for the first time, if we just read the verse in isolation. But the context in the preceding verse, verse 19, um, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Before, therefore, be zealous and repent. So that indicates he's who is he writing to? To believers. He's writing to believers in a church that have gone so far that it's almost like Jesus is no longer present in their midst. So it's a, a call and an exhortation of repentance to believers, not to unbelievers, to come to Christ. Um, so we have to look at the larger paragraph that this is referring to the church. So verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. So the church, what is the church? Well, Acts defined as the church is the body of believers, those who believe the gospel. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who? The churches. Not to the world, not to unbelievers, but to the churches. Um, verses really address the believers who need to repent from their sin and return to fellowship with God. Now, um, let's go on to this grasping the text in their own town. And I like the way he, the, our authors uh, in our textbook do is they have this trip, you know, this uh, um, journey that takes you from an original audience, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, and then tries to bring to application to our present circumstances. So in this first step, the reader answers the question, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Um, two lessons ago, well, three now I think, we looked at the topic of inspiration, remember that? And we found that the Bible is both a human book and a divine book. What is... Um, what are some implications of that? And maybe um, this is a too hard of a question, but what are some things that believing in God's inspiration um, of Scripture that is both human, because he used human authors, and then he was guided by the, that were guided by the Spirit to write a Scripture? So what are some implications of how we should interpret the text. If we believe that there was written by human authors and it was, it was brought out about by God, uh, what are some things that it, it guides us already in our interpretation if we believe inspiration? Any takers? The human, the 
Exactly. So human authorship already gives us the, the fact that, you know, God wrote in human words. Um, the authors understood what God was trying to convey. Moses, when he uh, went to the, um, you know, Mount Sinai and, and he got the, the commandments there, the Ten Commandments, he's not wondering, you shall not murder. Oh, maybe he's not really saying you shall not murder. Maybe he's saying something else, some different meaning behind this. So, very good. Um, the, knowing that God used human authors makes it clear to us that the human words that he intended and that the original authors understood, that should be the main focus. So, human authors had a, a specific historical audience. They had a specific context. They had a specific purpose. Human authors used their own language, that's what Eric is saying here, writing methods and the styles, style of writing, a literary form of writing. The way you interpret a proverb, it is different than the way you interpret the, the law. You shall not murder. And you read a proverbs, and, and some people read proverbs as if they are commands. Um, there are guidance, there are snippets, you know, the fool acts this way, but the wise acts on this way. So the lesson is don't be a fool, right? Um, but that is not a command. It is an illustration of a snippet in life. You know, it's just a little part of life. Um, train the child in the way that they should go. Maybe I'll show some of these uh, little videos. There's a guy at TMS that he made some short videos, like three minutes, uh, where he gets all these Bible verses that got misinterpreted and out of context. You know, like uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know which plans I have for you and <laughs> a plan to bring you peace and, and whatever. And so he explains the, the meaning um, of the, that was intended for the original audience. All right. The other implication for inspiration is the divine authorship of the Bible gives its unity and the ultimate interpretation is from God. That's why sometimes when you're reading the New Testament and they're making a reference to something in the Old Testament, you're like, you start scratching your head. I remember it was very confusing to me to read when Jesus um, says that I, I called my son out of Egypt. I, the Gospel of Matthew says I called my son out of Egypt. That, that what is he doing there? Is there a typology? Right? Um, the people of Israel spend, spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 <laughs> days in the wilderness. It, so there is similarity on those passages. But the divine author is the one that can dictate. We don't have the freedom to make those connections where God never made them. So divine authorship of the Bible gives its unity and the ultimate interpretation is from God. The first part in step one is to read the text carefully and to observe details. In this step, we we'll try to see as much possible in the text. We have to look and look and look again. Um, so I gave you to do, what, uh, 20 observations? Uh, at seminary, I think they asked us to do 35. 
And I was like, there's no way. Third John is too, too short. I mean, it's what, 12 verses? 15? Um, 15 observations. I mean, what, what am I going to come up with here? Um, but the more I read it, the more things started standing, standing out. So I don't know how many of you worked at it this week. Um, do you feel comfortable with me sharing some of your observations? <laughs> yeah, Dylan, you fine? Okay. Um, all right. So after you do that, after completing all these studies, synthesize the meaning of the passage for the biblical audience in one or two sentences. That is, write out what the passage meant for the biblical audience. Use past tense verbs as you're describing it. And refer, as we refer to the biblical audience. For example, God commanded the Israelites in Joshua, um, or Paul exhorted the Ephesians to do not be drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus encouraged his disciples by saying, you know, I am gentle and lowly. Uh, be specific. Do not generalize or try to develop theological principles yet. Interpret the Bible literally or normally, allowing for formal use of figurative language. Take the plain meaning of the text at face value. When the literal does not make sense, you probably have a figure of speech. For example, Isaiah 55, verse 12, it states that the trees of the field will clap their hands. Since the trees do not have hands or clap, this must be a figure of speech. We have another figure of speech um, in, in our, actually in our text today for Samuel 25. Uh, for Samuel 25. Um, it says, um, it's talking about Nabal. And um, after his wife talked to him, so verse 36, then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, and all of this happened. But then the morning came, she goes and talks to her husband, and it says that his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. So that's, that's a figure of speech. He probably had a, a stroke or, or some sort of cardiac uh, attack there. Because 10 days later, the guy's dead. Um, his heart died within him. That doesn't literally mean that the Lord transformed his heart into stone and it stopped beating. <laughs> Something happened in, in the muscles of his heart that he's trying to describe here as a, as, a, as a stone. So, all right. So take into account those uh, figures of speech. Um, step two. Measuring the width of the river to cross. In this step, the reader must answer the question, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? The primary difference between the original um, recipients and the modern reader are cultural, linguistic, situational, and covenantal. 
as I've said before, the Christian today is separated from the biblical audience by differences. You know, all of these things, these differences form a river, um, and that's what the author is trying to do there, is to um, make it into a, um, a, a river that separates the original audience from us. And sometimes this river will be very wide, and sometimes this river will be very narrow. Uh, there's not much distance between their context and our context. Um, these differences form a river that hinders us from moving straight from the meaning, the context, to the meaning in ours. The width of the river, however, varies from passage to passage. Sometimes it's extremely wide, requiring a long and substantial bridge for crossing. At other times, however, it is narrow, a narrow creek that we can easily hop over. It is obviously important to know just how wide the river is before we start trying to construct a bridge between those texts. Um, if you are studying an Old Testament passage, also be sure to identify those significant theological differences that came as a result of the life and work of Christ. In addition, whether in the Old Testament um, or in the New Testament, try to identify any unique aspects of the situation of your land. Moses has just died. This was the context for Joshua chapter 1. Um, and so Joshua was, has been appointed to take his place. And in this passage, God speaks to Joshua to encourage him to be strong and faithful in the upcoming conquest of the land. What are the differences? We're not entering or conquering any land. We are not new leaders of the nation of Israel. We are not under the old covenant. So we need to be sensitive to the distinctions between Israel and the church. Promises that were given to Israel, you, I think I mentioned this before, the prosperity gospel likes quoting this verse a lot you know you're gonna be you're gonna be the head or not the tail you're gonna be a leader everywhere that you stump your foot that that's the Lord's gonna give it to you trying to reproduce some of the things that was given to the people of Israel specifically in the old covenant um, all right uh, some, some passages will be a little bit more complex. For example, Le Leviticus 19.19, 19, there's a commandment, the command that you must not wear a garment made of two different kinds of fabric. This was a binding command under the Mosaic law, but not under the terms of the New Covenant. It is true that the Old Testament commands repeated um, in the New Testament are still binding, but this is made clear by the repetition in the New Testament. You know, Jesus explained some of the law. He said, you know, you heard what was said, you should not commit murder. But I say to you that there is more to it than just killing someone. If you are angry at someone and you curse them, you murder them already in your heart. Or if you look at a woman um, with impure eyes, that is, that is adultery already. In God's eyes, we read, shall not commit, commit adultery, but he's saying there is more to it. There is an application for us in this present uh, time. 
the church was formed in Acts 2 with the descent of the Holy Spirit. And most statements to and about the church occur after that. So there is a future for national Israel. Romans chapter 11 picks that up. Um, God did not forget Israel. All his promises that he made through the prophets will still be fulfilled. Right now, we are living during the era of the church. But when the rapture happens, Israel comes back into the picture. And it's going to be God's agent again in this world. All right? Um, crossing the principalizing bridge, that's step three. Then how, how do we make um, this crossing? Uh, how do we pick up what is true then and it's true today? Um, how do we bridge these con two contexts? The, third, the question that you ought to be asking, what is the theological principle in the text? And um, four, five principles, and I think this is on your book, page uh, 20. And the principle should be reflected in the text. You, you should see that principle in there. The principle should be timeless. So it, whatever it was in the Old Testament law, it should be still true today. Um, the principle should not be culturally bound. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is saying, you know, I prefer due to the present distress that you do not get married, bringing a spouse into this persecution here is going to be hard. Therefore, he, he's, he's warning them, right? What is the, the, the merging to us? We're not facing persecution. <laughs> We're not having to endure um, I mean, unless you're going to the mission field, um, you will see the, the, the hardship. Um, but in our context, you know, it's not really happening. So if you are sexually tempted, as Paul said, you should get married. Why, why, sh why should you decide not to? Um, you're not under persecution. So that key word, the present distress helps us understand what was happening and what should be in common between us and them. Um, the principle should correspond to the rest of Scripture. Um, does, does it contradict the Scripture, your interpretation? Well, it probably doesn't fit it. Then The principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. So why... Can we still preach from the Old Testament, even though we're no longer under the Old Covenant? Well, because it is God's Word that is inspired, and there is teaching for us. There are examples that we need to follow, and there are examples that we should be warned about so that we don't fall into their same mistakes. Yes, our circumstances are different, but we still can live out our faith before the Lord, just as they did. That's why... Hebrews chapter 11, what is, what is he doing there? It's just like narrating all these examples of faithful man of God and faithful woman of God. And say, you, you look at their faith, 
And you do the same thing. You fix your eyes in Christ as in your fight for sin. So this is perhaps the most challenging step, I think, in the interpretation. In it, you are looking for the theological message or principle principles that are reflected in the meaning of the text you identify in step one. So remember that this theological principle is part of the meaning. Your task is not to create a meaning, but to discover the meaning intended by the author. As God gives specific expressions and specific biblical audiences, he's also giving universal theological teachings for all his people through the same text. So let me give you an example here of um, a text, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. And um, what is 13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, clearly, we know that this text is not saying that we're invincible. Um, Paul didn't do all things humanly possible he could do so what should we see here well let's read the 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 previous verses Uh, starting in verse 10 but i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me indeed you were concerned before but you lacked the opportunity so paul is going through distress here for financial hardship Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul is saying, I have been through tough times i've been through tough times but god sustained me through it all i mean we you might not be going hungry today you might not be be persecuted but what is what is the common thread here well i do go through hardship i can say confidently that God gives me strength during those times. He will help me to endure. He will help me to be faithful. Right? That is a common principle. If you were to tell Paul, Paul, I think this is an application <laughs> for me. Um, I, I go to school with a bunch of unbelievers, and they are attacking my faith, and it's really difficult I'm being persecuted for my faith. You can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He will give me the patience to endure that. He will help me to give a good answer. So we're trying to bridge this gap, right? And after you have eventually, um, next step there, bridged the, the, this river, we must ask the question, 
How does our theological principle fits in with the rest of the Bible? That's where, you know, you have one verse there, Philippians 4, 13. What is the larger context? What do the verses before say? What do the verses after say? A lot of the parables, if only people read them in their context, you would, you would see them clearly. The parables of Jesus, he, he gave them in a, in a, in a situation to, ex, to make a point. Like we just read Luke 10, right? The parable of, um, uh, of the Good Samaritan where um, Augustine made that just, you know, it really tore the text apart to mean something totally different. But if we only read the verses before, we'll see that the context here is that he, he's having an argument with someone. He says, and a lawyer stood up and put up him to test, saying, Teacher, what should I intend to do in, to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, with your, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Bam. There he goes. Jesus brings the story here to illustrate to him, You know who is a neighbor? It's anyone that you come in contact with. You know, it's anyone in need here. And then he explains in verse 37, and he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Which one of these three, verse 36, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? Not the Levite. It was a, a, a stranger that did that. So he's saying, you know, lower your <laughs> assessment of yourself. Um, you're not that good of a person. Um, you're like that Levite that don't have, com don't have compassion, doesn't have uh, mercy on others. So that's the point. See the larger section. Uh, we're going to be studying uh, today, and most of our fellowship groups are going to be happening. So we're trying to look at some, Paul, some Pauline epistles that have similarities with the letter to the Colossians. Why? Because it's the same author. You, would, you will see some of the same phraseology, the, some of the same things um, that he will repeat himself. And then lastly, grasping the text in their own town. This last step, we are trying to ask the question, how should individual Christians today live out the theological principles? So in step five, we apply the theological principle to the specific situation of individual Christians in the church today. We cannot leave the meaning of the text stranded in an abstract theological principle. We must now grapple with how we should respond to that message in our town. How does it apply in real-life situations today? While each passage, there will usually only be a few, or often only one alone, theological principles relevant for all Christians today, there will be numerous possibilities for application. 
This is because Christians today find themselves in many different specific situations. Each of us will grasp and apply the same principle in slightly different ways depending on our current life situation and where we are in our relationship with God. Um, How do you read uh, the letters in uh, Revelation to the churches? Hmm? Well, you, you see what, what do we have in common? Uh, do we have cold people in the church today? Yes, we do. What, what is God's instruction to them? Well, repent and turn from that state and pursue your first love. Remember when you first believed in Christ. Um, well, that is, that is common to us. I can bridge that. How can I fan out my love for God? You know, maybe a a way that I can apply this is I want to spend more time reading the Bible. Maybe I'm going to get a book where I can read more about God's attributes. I want to understand who my God is more so that I can love him more. So, you know, but you can apply that in different ways. The principle is, we need to repent when we are in this state here. But how are you going to do that to fan out, to seek your first love? Maybe write down your testimony. Maybe think about ways that the Lord has um, you know, protected you and cared for you. And be thankful. All right? So I want to close us and take a few minutes here with um, our observations in Third John. So next week, your assignment is read chapter 3. All right, there's, I'm not going to add anything. So far, we are in the very first step. All right? The first step is to make observations. Just looking at the text as it is, what do you come up with? So uh, let's... Open to Third John. Um, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to you truth, that is, how you were taught walking in truth, And I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So he's going to describe these different characters, Gaius and Diotrephus, right? And so I'm going to read some of your observations here. Let me see who is comfortable with me reading. You can raise your hand and I, okay. Jenny, um, find yours here. All right, so here are some that um, Jenny uh, wrote. Um, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. That's John saying. Um, So, oh, there you go. Here's observations. The letter is addressed to an individual, not a church, verse 1. That's good. John shows affection by referring to Gaius four times 
as his beloved. Um, you see in verse 1, um, beloved Gaius. Um, and let me see other instances. Beloved, verse 5. And then uh, verse 11, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So there's an affection here toward Gaius. So that clues you in that Gaius is a good guy. <laughs> he is not a bad guy like Demetrius is. He prays not only for Gaius' physical health, but also for his spiritual health. He says, you know, just as your physical body is prospering, I want you to prosper spiritually as well. John reports actions. He prays for him. He rejoiced greatly in the testimony that he's walking the truth. Um, he will bring it, what he wrote, up again because authority was not acknowledged. Truth is exhibited in love through testimony and how we walk with fellow workers. Um, why is Demetrius not walking in the truth? Well, because he's not receiving those of the truth. Um, truth is connected with love. Um, the testimony of brothers walking in truth brings joy to John. And then the brothers, um, they were strangers to Gaius and testified of his love before the church. Um, Gaius was someone that welcomed people, welcomed the strangers to his house. All right, so just a few examples here of observations. Um, see, on verse 3, um, I'm going to read some of mine. It says, he embraced the truth personally. How do we know that? Well, he says, um, your truth, John is writing to him and saying, your truth, that's personal. So Gaius embraced that truth that he's talking about. Um, another one is Gaius, demo Gaius demonstrates faithfulness, specifically in his actions toward other Christians. Consider the definition of faithful here. Maybe you're reading some of these things, and you you know, what, it, what does it mean, worthy of God? What is the significance of this word? So you're going to be looking for keywords here, and maybe just put a question mark. What, what does it mean by this? Um, you know, you're not trying to answer all your questions. You're just trying to understand the passage as, as it is. All right? Okay. Any questions so far? I will close us in prayer here in a little bit. But I want to give an opportunity if you have any questions um, on the things that we covered. Nope. All right. You can feel free to come and talk to me um, afterwards. So. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, um, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that not only inspired these words that brought us to brought um, salvation to us and understanding to us, but also continue to instruct us, to correct us, to redirect our paths, our paths. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless our study of your word. May we be encouraged and be and grow in our understanding of its doctrines of its um, implications on how we ought to live lord we love you and we want to love your word all the more in jesus name amen